James, we said, is, uh, well, it's kind of the uh, New Testament punch in the throat, right? He gets right at it. He doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. He's very direct. He jumped right in in chapter 1, and he dealt with one of the most difficult issues. What about this hard stuff that I have to go through, Pastor? What about this hard stuff, Jesus, that I have to go through in this life even though I'm yours? What does it mean? How do I deal with it? How do I respond? How does God fit in? Can I cry out to him? Will he answer me? What is the perspective I should have? What's the truth of my humble circumstances opposed to those who are blessed in their circumstances here in this life? How does that balance out? What's going to happen in eternity? Chapter 1. Uh, I'll tell you that if chapter 1 and really the whole book of James is a punch in the throat, I think chapter 2 is a punch in the gut. Uh, you're going to see why here in just a minute. Let me tell you, let me tell you what this passage is about. We're going to do the first 13 verses here pretty quickly. Let me tell you what this is about. Kids, you may have heard it said before in school, or maybe mom and dad told you that you can't judge a book by its cover. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, we've all heard that before. It's pretty simple. It makes sense that we can't tell how good or bad the book is. You can't really even tell necessarily what the book is going to be about. And really till you dive in, you dig in and you get into the actual book. Some covers are real fancy, but that doesn't mean the book is real good. <laughs> Some covers are real plain and basic, but that doesn't mean the book is bad. Uh, my grandfather put it a different way. He said, you can't tell a $10 bill by the Tootsie Roll wrapper. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Let me tell you why it makes sense. Um, growing up, we'd go to my grandfather's house, and he had a uh, he had candy stash, man. There were a couple different places that me and my brother, we would go first off. Well, number one, you had to go in. You had to give my grandfather a hug and a kiss. That was rule number one. And then you could go to the candy drawer. The candy drawer was in the bottom drawer. It was his crisper drawer in his refrigerator. And he had every candy bar known to mankind in that drawer. Okay? And you got to go. You got to get one of those. You got to get you a soda and uh, everything that mom and dad weren't going to let you have. Right? And uh, he also had this bowl on his counter. And it traveled from different house to different house wherever he lived. He had this bowl, and it was full of Tootsie Rolls. Now, I'm not talking about these little mini, you know, fake Tootsie Rolls. I'm talking about, like, big man Tootsie Rolls, Vic, okay? Like the big long ones, okay, that took you, like, a week to chew on. You could grab it like a big old beef jerky and chew on the whole deal. He had a whole, a whole bowl or basket, and it kind of went from house to house. And you always knew you could go, you go to the drawer and get a candy bar. Or on special occasions, it seemed like, he'd say, all right, pick out one Tootsie Roll, one Tootsie Roll. Now, here's the special thing about Tootsie Rolls, because I wasn't really a big Tootsie Roll fan, but the Tootsie Rolls were cool because there were money in the Tootsie Rolls. There's money in the Tootsie Rolls. It could be a $1 bill. It could be a $5 bill. It could have been a $10 bill. But you couldn't tell. All the Tootsie Rolls looked alike. None of them looked any different. And I don't know how he did it, man. I've still, I, I thought about this morning, since the kids were going to be in here, I was going to get a bunch of Tootsie Rolls, and I was going to put money in one of them, and I was going to seal it back up, etc. And you guys weren't going to be able to tell where the Tootsie Roll was, and I'd have you come up, and I'd, I'd talk about this little lesson, what is this passage about, and I'd let you all pick one, and then we could see, you know. Uh, it'd be a perfect illustration. But I'm telling you, I can't figure out for the life of me how he ever got the money in there and then sealed back up. You couldn't find it, man. I don't know, he had like special glue, he used tweezers, he like dissected the thing, put it, took it apart, put the money in there, put it back together. You could not tell. You couldn't tell a $10 bill for the Tootsie Roll wrapper around it. They all, they all looked the same. Here's the point. You could not tell the worth of that Tootsie Roll by looking at it. You couldn't tell its worth or its value just by looking at its wrapper. You, you tracking with me, kids? It's kind of what this passage is about. We all too often make judgments about people by their wrapper, don't we? 
Happens all the time. James 2 explains how that tendency has even slipped into the church. And that's a shame. Now, congregation, if this, if this lesson, this don't judge a book by its cover, Tootsie Roll $10 bill lesson that we're going into here in James 2, if it seems at the outset to be a lesson for five-year-olds, then good. I kind of want that to be your attitude going into this. Because what's going to happen to you, hopefully, as the Spirit, as the Spirit works through His Word here, is going to happen what happened to me. Along with that seeming simplicity, the Holy Spirit, hopefully, is going to come alongside that with what He does best, often in my life, and it's conviction. And this is going to be that punch in the gut, because all too often, this, this simple truth, it gets lost, even in the body of Christ. And it's a big deal. And so James, coming off the heels of dealing with trials and evil in our day, he goes right into this as if it's his number two issue to address. You know, this ought not to be true in the church, but we know that it is. And you know what? Uh, Not only do we know it's wrong, but the world instinctively knows that it's wrong as well, don't they? Yeah. As the world looks upon us, whether they believe what we believe or not, or whether they think we're just uh, crazy, they instinctively know that that should not be true of those who name the name of Christ. That there should be no, what James is going to call, distinctions. There should be no favoritism. There should be no judging by the rapper. Folks, I'll just tell you, the hardest thing about teaching this passage is frankly getting out of the way of the passage. Because I can almost just read this to you. And James, James hits a square with it. Watch this. Last week we looked in James. We saw the, uh, the will of our Father by the planting of the word of truth in our hearts that we embrace that implanted word, allowing the power inherent in it to affect us. Remember that? That we be more than hearers, but also doers of the word. In a word we found that we, we must be changed. We can't come to the Word and not let it affect us, change us. That it is no longer our wills, we saw, that are expressed in life, which are, by the way, as we saw, at the mercy of our own lusts, right? But that His will will, will in bearing good fruit, verse 18 of chapter 1, it would take precedence over our will over what our desires, what our lusts in this life are. Then he concluded, you remember in verse 27, with these words, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained or untainted by the world. Now, don't let the chapter division throw you off here, okay? Uh, Number one, chapter divisions weren't in the original letters. You get that, right? The, the numbers and the chapter divisions, the verse numbers and the chapter numbers, we put in to help us, okay? They weren't in their original divinely uh, inspired writings, okay? So sometimes there's a division where uh, there ought not to be such a division. I think it's a good break here from chapter 1 to chapter 2, but it's not, it's not James going in a whole different direction. He's going to shift gears, but he's still on the same road, okay? Now watch this, because it's as if he says on the heels of verse 27... That pure and undefiled religion is this, and he talks about the bereaved, the widows, and the orphans. And it's as if he turned and says, by the way, let's talk about those 
lowly people. Let's talk about those little orphans. Let's talk about those little widows. And we get chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. The Greek sentence structure here paints a portrait for us, okay? Without going into too much depth, he paints this word picture for us in just the construction of his wording so that this, this one verse here opening up, coming off of what pure and undefiled religion is to be, he says, listen now, brethren, church, we ought not to hold this, and he uses this, this unique, only, only used here from what I know, it's only used here, this glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That phrasing is only used in this one place. It's an odd phrase. He says we are, we're not to hold our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's as if you have that in one hand alongside, so to speak, with the attitude of personal favoritism. And now he's going to open up in the next verses and he's going to say, these two things cannot be in the believer's life together, coexisting without conflict. There is a rub between these two things. How do we work it out? If you don't get that, he goes into verse 2 and he uses an example. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. Notice that, the, that the, what we notice here is not the person, it's, it's their accoutrement, it's their wrapper, so to speak. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, you sit here in a good place. You cater to them. And you say to the poor man, hey, hey, stand over there. You're fine. It's good. Usher this guy up front. And this guy, have a seat, man, anywhere you want. Yeah, you can stand in the back if you want. Or have a seat at my footstool. Both are indications of paying little attention. We're not that excited. They get, they get treated as a second-class citizen. In the picture here of the assembly of God could be translated synagogue. You stand over there or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made, James says, now in that example, distinctions among yourself and become judges, judges with evil motives? Uh, My seminary professor told a story one time. Uh, and I think I've heard this story several times. Pastors have done it. Seminary professors have done it. In teaching this book, here's, here's how it goes. I thought of doing it to you, but I, I didn't know who I could recruit to, uh, to help me out. Uh, what you do is you get a guy, and uh, it's you know, a normal guy of the congregation, and you dress him up like the lowly. You dress him up as the poor guy. You get him real dirty. You get him tattered clothes, and you set him out on the corner of the entrance of your church parking lot, and you give him a cardboard sign that says something, help, something, and he's slouching, and he's, and he's obviously, obviously not a blessed, according to James 1, man. And what happens is you see, you see how the church responds. You see how the seminary class responds. My professor in seminary, he said, I did this once before teaching James. I had another student sit outside of the hall where he taught his class, and, and we dressed him in, in rags, and we got him dirty, and we even put stink on him. And he said, I let all the students come right by him into class, and then we taught James too. And then he brings the guy into class and says, how are we doing, seminarians? 
How are we doing, Christians? I didn't do that to you if you're wondering if there was a guy sitting out there. He wasn't. That's the, that's the picture here that James paints, however. Now, let's be, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Um, as a human, as a Christian, and even as a pastor, guys, I've got to tell you that I, I struggle with this. I struggle with this. We all do. It's a simple truth, and we instinctively know, even not as believers, just as human beings, that it's not right. We don't like it. We rebel against it when we see it in society. Believers and non-believers alike. They will gather together, lock arms, to war against this happening. But it happens nonetheless. This is the last place it should happen. And James says, it's happening. And let's be honest, it happens here, in a place where we preach and cry out as a body of Christ against any kind of distinguishment, against any kind of levels, against any kind of grading of ourselves, and we put ourselves all in the same playing field, theologically, it happens. It happens here in my heart. That God asks me, am I going to shepherd? Am I going to pour into? Am I going to spend time? Am I going to call How am I going to live my Christianity out in regard to this guy or in regard to this guy? And this guy may be uh, a professional athlete, and this guy may be of no reputation at all. There would be nothing that would draw me to him, nothing in his appearance. By the way, who does that sound a whole lot like in description? And it's as if there's now this choice, right? Am I going to hold my faith in my glorious Lord Jesus? Or am I going to... I'm going to cling to making distinctions, playing favoritism and, and reputations. James says this is going on. I think, what it, I think the principle that it keys on here, guys, I think the base issue, it's no different than what we fight against in, in theology and the gospel in and of itself. It comes down to me, as I was thinking about it, it comes down to two human issues. Number one, I think primarily it has to come down to our pride. God resists the proud. He gives grace and mercy to the humble. The attitude that allows these verses to happen in the assembly of God, I think it boils down to pride. Secondarily, I think it does have something to do with money. We know from Scripture that the love of money, not just money itself, but our love, our affection, our desire, our lust for it, perhaps, is the root of all evil. So in my mind, as I was praying through this, even just last night, I'm pairing these two together. I say, God, this is a problem of my pride, and it's a problem of my, my desire for more stuff. Because what do we see in this example? We see a guy with fine clothes, a guy wearing gold and jewels, and we usher him in. He's obviously important to us just by his appearance alone. You get the idea here from the example that they don't really know that he is, but he just appears to be, and that's what they respond to. And this guy just appears to be of no importance, and they respond accordingly to him. And we instinctively know that's wrong, but what is the problem? I think James keys on it on the end of verse 4. He says we become judges with evil motives. It's about our motives, church. It's about our motives. What do, how are we responding? Well, we're responding out of pride and I think out of our desire and the lust that he keyed into in the end of chapter 1, right? Because it's, it kind of works like this, that if I get to hang out with that, that guy a little bit, somehow my self-worth is amplified. Somehow my self-worth is increased. Maybe he just rubs off on me a little bit and now I become a little bit more rich in my person. My pride is boosted just by my association with that person. 
Because what is the person of lowly nature going to do for my pride? Not a whole lot. What's he going to do for my ego? Not a whole lot. Is he going to meet any of my needs, any of my desires, any of my hungers for more stuff? Probably not. Is there a chance that when I run into a professional golfer who I know at a previous uh, church, when I run into him at the mall, that I, that I, something in my flesh, and, it, and I, and this, this actually happened, right? I'm just confessing to you. Something in my flesh said, yeah, I want to talk to this guy, right? And, and I know him and, and we're kind of friends and, and so that's fine. But there was also in me this, this flesh part of me that just wanted to talk to this guy because of who he was and what he did. But the truth is, being a professional golfer not necessarily makes him any more beneficial to me spiritually. And what do I actually think? I mean, his golf game's certainly not rubbing off on me. And are people going to see me with him and my esteem will go up? You see, this is an issue of pride. It's an issue of our desires. It's our hunger for our, watch this, our glorification. Instead of that odd little phrase he used to start the whole thing off, holding on to the glorious, <laughs> the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. See the tension? Keep going. Not only is this evil in the motives, verse 4, he's going to tell us in the next few verses, it's really an erroneous way of thinking. It's, it's an error. Verse 5, listen, and that's the command of the verse. Remember I told you as we started the book of James, there's several commands jam-packed into this book. More, more commands, all right? More exclamation marks, so to speak, in this little book than any other place in Scripture. He just throws them in here right after left. But his heart, again, is pouring out because these are, these are who? Beloved brothers. But he's saying, listen, it's almost as if he's begging them because it's not right. Listen, my brethren. Did not God, by the way, it's kind of, that, kind of the tone I get here. Did not God, by the way, choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, and he promised to those who love him. It's an erroneous way of our thinking that we would act like this. It's not only evil, but it's error. Because God himself does not feel that way towards the lowly, towards the poor, towards the widows, towards the orphans, towards the bereaved. God does not feel that way towards them, nor does he act this way towards them. We get that nowhere theologically in Scripture. It's, it's flat out just error, not just evil. Think about this for a second. Remember the perspective uh, we got from chapter 1. Uh, our faith levels the playing field between those of humble circumstance, he said, and those of blessed circumstance. Okay? And he said, basically, in death, the whole playing field just levels out. So whether you find yourself of humble means in this life... That's not necessarily an indicator of your eternity. Or whether you find yourself of blessed means in this life, that's neither necessarily an indicator of where your eternity ends up. He said death is kind of this great equalizer because the flower for this guy, it fades, it withers. All his glory in this life, it's going away in death. And now he has to stand just like this guy before a holy God. And it's only faith that matters at that point. That's the perspective he comes into this passage with coming out of chapter 1. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind because he says here, these poor guys, God has chosen, and that's a huge word. I won't, I won't take the time to get into that this morning, but there's, there's power behind that for what he's teaching here. But God not only chose the poor, 
But look what they get. Look at the correct perspective that God has towards them and what we should have towards them, which he already taught us in chapter 1, is that they're not poor. They're rich in their faith. It's not that they're rich in their faith of their own doing. It's not like they have rich faith. It's they're rich, in other words, because of their faith. Their faith makes them not what they seem to be because of their wrapper. Their faith actually makes them wealthy before a holy God. That's the perspective the church ought to have. But when we act like 2, 3, and 4, we act in error. We act in error. You know, the gospel story is itself a story about all men being spiritually, not just poor, but bankrupt, isn't it? Here in verse 5, he would have us to know that God hasn't historically seemingly been about the business of going after the guy in high positions. The gospel seems to be directed predominantly towards who? Those who are not wise, those who are not strong, those who are weak, those who are not rich, those who have very little, check this out, make the correlation here, very little of their own to depend on. And we go back to pride and desire and gathering and elevating our self-worth. It's inherent in the gospel message itself that pride is rejected by God. And that those who are in lowly circumstance are seemingly the men and women that God focuses his arrow of mercy and grace upon. Uh, Words like the words of Jesus should come to mind that it would be much easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be into heaven. Now, neither that passage nor this passage teaches that all rich are unable to receive mercy. That's not the point. But there is this aspect of Scripture that I think in this context we ought to learn from, church, that God has a special affection in his heart for the lowly. You could also make a lengthy study of both the Old and New Testament passages that express God's affection for the literally, not just spiritually bankrupt, but the literally poor and lowly. Wouldn't be a bad idea sometime to look through the Proverbs or even the Psalms for God's heart for those who we would not esteem in our own thinking. Either way, the point James makes is this. It's an erroneous, it's an error for believers who know the way of God and who know how he feels towards the lowly to regard the lowly in these kind of ways, to make distinctions, to play favorites. It's not only evil, it's it's based in error. It's based in error. In 6 and 7, James takes it even a step further. Watch this. But you have dishonored the poor man. And by the way, it is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court, is it? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? The men that fell into this category of esteem were very often the men that oppressed the early Christians, drugged them into court forcibly, took whatever little that they had as a dispersed people among the nations. And worse than all that, watch this, they blasphemed the fair name by which the Christian had been called, namely the glorious name of Lord Jesus Christ. It just doesn't make sense. 
Why would we, why would we do this? When over and over it seems to be these guys that we, that we show favoritism to that are causing us the most heartache and the most trouble, especially to the name of the Jesus who has called us. Now today, guys, um, who are the hardest people to reach with grace? Who are the hardest people to reach in our society with mercy? Answer, those who sense no need for grace and those who sense no need for mercy. It, it tends to be, and it makes sense when you think about our pride and our desire and our lusts, all right? It makes sense that the more we have, the less we feel like we need God. And so who tends to be the most difficult? popular, the high, the mighty, the rich. Why? They don't need grace in their mind. But not only is it evil and erroneous, but in the next couple of verses, he's going to tell us that it's flat out sin. Watch this. It's flat out sin. Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, another odd phrase, according to the scripture, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a quote from Leviticus 19, but it's also used by Jesus, you'll remember. He says, if you are fulfilling that royal law, why is it a royal law? It could also maybe be translated the law of the king. Who is the king? Well, Jesus is our king. It's as if James kind of puts this all together here, calls it the royal law, knows that it's not only from Leviticus, but that Jesus quoted this. You remember what Jesus was asked? What is the greatest of all the commandments? And he summed up 600 plus Old Testament laws in essentially one word, love. Love your God with all you have. And then he added to it, he said, he said and the second is like unto it. And that doesn't mean that, it, that it's kind of similar. What that means is that it is necessarily attached. One does not come without the other. The second is like unto it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the words of the king. So he's just pointing out law here. No, he's pointing out the words of a person. So our offense here is more than just a breaking of the law, although he's going to tell us that it is surely a breaking of the law. I think he wants us to understand that it's, it's an offense against a holy and a glorious Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words of Jesus. If we fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you're doing well. You're doing well. 9 to 11, watch this. If, if we do this thing, if we do the... The, the favoritism thing, if we make distinctions, what he wants us to understand in these next couple of verses is that it is no small thing, church. Watch. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Point, you are absolutely guilty. And you get the idea here, and it makes sense to me when I think about how my life goes through this This challenge to not show partiality. You get the idea here that he's coming off of chapter 1, verse 27, talking about these little ones, talking about the orphans and the widows, etc., that we kind of have this idea that this really isn't that big of a deal. But to be clear to us, he's going to say, church, understand this is flat out sin. It's not only evil, it's not only erroneous, but it's sin. Keep going. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. You can't get away with just showing favoritism among the body and act like it's no big deal. You're breaking the law. And this is more, church, this is more than just all sins are alike, and if you break this one, then you've broke them all, because 
We, it's more than that. I think it goes back to this heart of our pride and our self-esteem, which is in direct opposition to the gospel message. And I think this issue, these 13 verses, are really the root of all of our problems. And this example that he gives of showing favoritism is most likely uh, one of those kind of examples that just sums up our whole Christianity. It tells on us, so to speak. It lets us know, hey, is this faith legit or is it a fraud? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, again, again, who said? God said. God said. It's not just some random ethereal law out there. God said. Look at what he said. Do not commit adultery. Interesting that he uses that commandment. And also said, do not commit murder. Interesting that he uses that commandment. He could have chosen any. It's as if James is trying to ramp up our attitude towards the seriousness that we have a perspective towards the sinfulness. Yeah? You follow me? All right, now watch this. For he who said these things, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. One one is not necessarily more heinous than the other. Uh, it's interesting to me. I think of, of these words coming from Jesus, and maybe this is what James had in mind. Jesus chose these two commandments himself to pick on, didn't he? He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say what? If you look on the woman as to lust after her, you've already committed it. He's going to the heart here. I think James might know this as the little brother of Jesus, you think? Yeah, maybe. But then don't miss, what is the second one he chose? Jesus chose it as well. You've heard it said before, if you, if you murder, you're guilty. But man, I'm, you also need to know that if you hate in your heart, if you hate in your heart, you're guilty of the same. Um, I think James wants to raise the level, help us to understand the seriousness of this, this favoritism, this partiality. Does it equate to hate in our heart? I think it might. Are we as guilty as if we've murdered? That would seem to be his point. Keep going here. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in the one point has become guilty of all. For he who has said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It is no small thing. So how are we doing right here, church? How are we doing? I'm just going to read verses 12 and 13 because I'm running short on time. But also because, as I said in the beginning, um, part of the challenge of teaching this passage is getting out of the way of it. So I'm going to leave you and the Spirit to deal with 12 and 13 and see where he takes you on it. Listen. So speak and so act. Includes both there. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged... By the law of liberty. Where did you see that before? Chapter 1, verse 25, we talked about the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs, however, over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Will we be judged, church, for the deeds of our flesh in Christ? Answer, absolutely. We'll be judged for our sin 
No, Christ has taken care of that. Do we fear that we will be booted out of uh, heaven at the very pearly gates? We have no fear of that. Is there precedence in Scripture for us to be concerned over the judgment of what we've done with the rest of our life post-salvation, what we've done with what God has instructed us? Should we be concerned? I think so. We could go to 1 Corinthians. We can go to 2 Corinthians 5. We could go to Revelation. We could go to a number of passages to show you that God will call us to account for the deeds we do in the flesh. Imagine going to the grocery store today, this afternoon when we're done. And uh, in the checkout line, while you're waiting to uh, pay for whatever you get there, you notice on the cover of one of the magazines, the best news, the best news you could imagine. And you pick whatever it is maybe for you. Maybe it's that uh, they get the oil capped in the Gulf. Maybe it's that uh, the war in the Middle East is done. There's peace in the land. Maybe it's that the economy has definitely taken a turn for the best and we're on the rise. Maybe it's that there's a cure for cancer. Whatever, whatever the best news you can think of, whatever that, that ideal headline would be for you, imagine yourself in the grocery store line and you look over and you see on the magazine, it's happened. Now imagine the joy that would come to you, that that would almost physically overtake you as as that, the most important news you've heard. It overwhelms your spirit and your soul and it almost moves you to emotion, that it's that important to you. Until you notice that it's not Newsweek, it's not Time or some other reputable journal. It's the National Enquirer. It's the Star Magazine. And there, on either side of your great and wonderful and blessed news, is aliens land on the top of Lenox Mall. And on the other side, uh, man gives birth to twin uh, mountain lions. I don't know. And now what you saw on the outset is great and wonderful and blessed news. It It loses everything. It's a sham. It's a fake. It's a fraud. It's of no worth. It's got no teeth. It's interesting that it's at this point, it's at this point of how we deal with each other, how we love one another, that Jesus says to the disciples something very sobering. He essentially tells the disciples and gives the world permission to judge our faith, our personal faith, and our corporate faith according to, what was it? Our love for one another. Um, The world has that right. It was granted to them by Jesus our glorious Lord and Savior Himself, that the world can peek in this church on any given Sunday or into your life group at home or in here on Monday nights when we're open for prayer or on Saturday mornings when we're giving away pancakes. He could peek into the body of Christ. The world could peek into the body of Christ and they 
can justifiably watch our lives and how we interact or how we conflict and judge accordingly the desirability, the accuracy, the effectiveness of our faith. It's as if he says, by their love, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you judge this gospel. You understand the weight of that, church? That as they look in here, this ought to be a glimpse of heaven. That black, white, poor, rich, this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks, smart, not so smart, beautiful, Vic. I hadn't picked on Vic in a while. Whatever it is, they're able to look in here and able to walk away with God's blessing. Say, either I, I want that. That is divine because that's what it would be. Amen? Us living in unity amidst our diversity, it would be divine, wouldn't it? Only in the house of God can that, can that have the possibility on this earth of ever happening. They can look in here and that's what they should see. But all too often, because of this silliness that we all know is a simple five-year-old lesson of rappers, of appearances, that gets tangled up with our pride, our self-sufficiency, our own gloriousness, the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's traded. Yeah, it's traded. I, uh, I've talked to you guys several times now about my prayer for this church, specifically in this year 2010. God has put one word on my heart. Ricky mentioned it earlier. is that we be extraordinary. It occurred to me this week that it's ironic that to be actually extraordinary might mean that we may need to do the ordinary things. Isn't that ironic? That we may not need to focus on all the dog and pony show stuff that, that too much of our American Christianity has been sucked into. But how about church? How about church? We do the ordinary, pure and undefiled in the sight of our God and Father, visiting orphans, widows, not showing any personal favoritism, not, not calling distinctions by, by appearance. How about we do the basics, guys? How about we do how about we do the Christian one on one stuff? According to scripture, that's what'll make a difference for those who are watching. Whether they see it in here or whether they see it out there. According to God, that's that's where the rubber hits the road. Is your faith a fraud? How you doing right there? If you're new to this place, you need to know that our love for you is not based on your wrapper on what you can offer us or this church. And where that's not true about our church, Cornerstone, let's make it true. That our love for them is based fully in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and what He has granted us and today what He offers you. Let's pray. God, if there be any ambition in us, would you make us aware by your Spirit and changed by your grace. We do long 
as a congregation. I sense it, Father. I sense that this small body of believers that you've called together, I sense that you're building in them a desire, a holy and a pure and an undefiled and an untainted and an unstained desire to be an extraordinary body and individually extraordinary believers for your glory. For the glorious name of our Lord Jesus, I sense that desire. Will you change us, God? Take the seed that is in the hearts of those who are here this morning who call Cornerstone home. Take that seed that is, that is calling them to, to fix whatever is not becoming of a Christian. To allow you to use that chisel and that rasp to knock those rough edges off of us. That we might be more loving. Uh, would you take that seed of, of our faith and would you, would you grow it, Father? Would you, would you do what only you can do in our hearts? Thank you for James, Lord. Thank you for, thank you for this book. Thank you for your word. It is not an idle word. It is our very life. Bless the time that your flock has spent at your feet, not only loving you, but learning of you and your ways and your glory and your holiness and your love for the poor and the lowly. Change us. Father, we cry out as we leave this place. We're not going to be satisfied. We're not going to be satisfied with anything ordinary. Not for our glory, but for your glory. We pray that this place become and these people become extraordinary. Receive these, receive these songs from pure hearts. God, we love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us? We got one more song. Give it to God. Give it to God. Amen? We'll be dismissed when this is done.
we won't be satisfied. We won't be satisfied with anything ordinary. We won't be satisfied at all. Sing that again. We won't be satisfied. We won't be satisfied with anything ordinary. We won't be satisfied at all. Don't want anything but you.